The MarTech Podcast is a proud member of the I Hear Everything Podcast Network. Looking to launch or scale your podcast? I Hear Everything delivers podcast production, growth, and monetization solutions that transform your words into profit. Ready to give your brand a voice? Then visit IHearEverything.com. From advertising to software as a service to data. Across all of our programs and clients, we've seen a 55 to 65% open rate. Getting brands authentically integrated into content performs better than TV advertising. Typical lifespan of an article is about 24 to 36 hours. If we're reaching out to the right person with the right message and a clear call to action, then it's just a matter of timing. Welcome to the MarTech Podcast, a Ben J. Shap LLC production. In this podcast, you'll hear the stories of world-class marketers that use technology to drive business results and achieve career success. We'll unearth the real-world experiences of some of the brightest minds in the marketing and technology space so you can learn the tools, tips, and tricks they've learned along the way. Now here's the host of the MarTech Podcast, Benjamin Shapiro. Welcome to Career Day on the MarTech Podcast. Today, we're going to learn about the skills accumulated and the lessons learned from a great marketer throughout the various stops on his career. Joining us today is Shiv Singh, who is the founder and CEO of Savvy Matters, a consultancy that advises startups and Fortune 500 companies alike on marketing, innovation, and digital transformation. Shiv is also the co-author of the book Savvy, Navigating Fake Companies, Fake Leaders, and Fake News in the Post-Trust Era. And today he's going to walk us through his career experience going from an in-house marketer to being a consultant and now the author of a book. Here's our interview with Shiv Singh, the founder of Savvy Matters and author of Savvy. Shiv, welcome to the MarTech Podcast. Thank you for having me on, Ben. It's great to have you here. I'm excited to hear a little bit about your career and also to hear about the book that you just authored. Let me just start off by saying I appreciate you not only sending me a book, I got a copy of it in the mail yesterday, but I have the handwritten note dated and also the hashtag, the savvy book, which I thought was brilliant marketer. A nice way to work with influencers is give them something, but also give them the ability to talk about your book in the appropriate fashion. So I'm excited to, when we publish this episode, be using the hashtag, the savvy book. Nice job in terms of doing your outreach. Oh, thank you. I try. I'd love to start off the conversation giving our listeners a little background. Let's just start off talking about how you got started in marketing. So, you know, for my undergraduate degree, I was at uh, Babson College in the Boston area. It's an entrepreneurial school, studied business. I was one of those folks who was half right brain, half left brain. I majored in information systems and uh, minored in creative writing. And for my honors thesis, they allowed me to write a piece of fiction, which was really interesting and exciting. I graduated in 1999, and it was an exciting time to enter the workforce because it was the internet boom. While I had been in college, I'd set up a small web design company which I'd gotten into by first designing the college's library website. And that I got into really because there was this wonderful librarian who said, I'm looking for someone to help me with HTML. And I said, I know those letters, but I don't know what they mean. And she said, don't worry about that. You seem like a good guy. I'll teach you everything you need to know. And she taught me HTML and learning HTML in 1996 was actually an awesome thing to learn. 
So that led me to building the school's library website. I graduated from college with this information systems, creative writing, dual degree. And then I started looking around for a job. And because this was the internet boom, there were a lot of jobs around. My first job was as a developer doing front-end development with a consulting company that quickly got acquired by Razorfish, the digital agency. But two months into my job, my boss said, I've got to break the news to you. You're not a very good developer. You're not just as sharp the way the other developers are. That had to feel good. (laughs) It, It did not feel good. But then he said, but there's good news, which is we think you're still very intelligent and we want you to lead the design and information architecture work that we do with our many clients. And little did I know that that worked perfectly for me because it took my right brain and my left brain and brought it together. So for a couple of years at Razorfish, I led user experience teams and I developed my own specialization in information architecture and information design. And I knew just enough about the technology side to be dangerous. And of course, I had a lot of empathy for the end user. The interesting thing to me about the early phases of your career, first off, Shiv actually lives a few blocks away from the house I'm building. And ironically, you went to Babson, which is the school closest to Boston University in terms of comparisons with the business schools. So it seems like we've had plenty of parallels both in our past and our current lifestyle. And I also consider myself to be a nice mix of right brain and left brain thinker. When you were early on in your career, whether it was your decision to go into college and work in information systems and something that was totally separate, like creative writing, and then you know you had this sort of false start early in your career in terms of being a developer, did you feel like you were trying to use one side of the skill set that you had? Or what was the reason why you were focused on development instead of using the creative skill set that you'd honed? Something that's always stayed with me is the sense of uneasiness about, am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Or am I fulfilling my potential? Or is that the right thing for me to do? And it was really just a couple of years ago that I came to terms with that question, which was that actually there isn't a real answer to it. And depending upon the stage of my career, depending upon what opportunities come my way, It's on me to be able to flex in any direction and enjoy the discomfort and the fear that goes with this idea that I may not be bringing all the skills that I have to the table, or I may be going in a direction that I haven't been in before as well. It sounds like by having a balance of what you called the right brain, left brain skill, it allows you to be flexible and understand a bunch of different principles. As you moved on from being more technically focused on to focusing on user experience, what were some of the roles that you took on and how did that help vault your career forward? So when I was at Razorfish, I was very lucky in that as I led these user experience teams, I had the opportunity to sit down and work with very, very senior leaders from companies like Ford to Chanel to Genentech to Citibank. And I was charged with leading the user experience teams, but increasingly also the brand strategy teams. And it was an incredibly exciting and humbling time for me. In fact, I'll never forget the moment I was at the Chanel US headquarters in New York, overlooking Central Park. We were like on the 40th floor, beautiful setting. And we were presenting the digital strategy for Chanel. And the head of marketing and the COO were sitting on either side of me. 
And at one point, the head of marketing turned to me and said, Shiv, there's something you don't understand. And I was taken aback. This was a meeting my team and I had prepared an immense amount for. We thought we had, were bringing in an A game and everything was going smoothly. And I said, what? And she said, it's not a matter of whether Chanel is ready for the internet. It's more a matter of whether the internet is ready for Chanel. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> I had the exact same thought going through my head in that moment. But it was a wonderful lesson for me because for however much there was all this thrill and excitement about the internet, it really taught me very quickly that there's always going to be a lot more that I do not know than I know. And I thought I was a dude. I knew the internet ecosystem really well. My career at Razorfish was like a hockey stick growth curve that a startup has. But it was a really good reminder that firstly, there's a lot more to the world than our digital ecosystem. And it was good to hear that early on. And then the second thing where I found it really valuable was it really gave me a sense of how much there is to a brand and how the timeless brands in our lives, they do stand the test of time and they do that by having a certain X factor that goes beyond a moment, that goes beyond a technology revolution, that goes beyond what may be happening in a country, whatever it may be. So it was really special. It's interesting that you frame it that way. I have attempted and struggled with and pivoted on how I describe the value and the purpose of a brand over my career. And I don't think anybody has the perfect descriptions of what a brand is or why it matters. Maybe some people that are listening will disagree. But on a fundamental level, I think that a brand is about reflecting the core values and purpose and mission of an organization. And those underlying foundational identity pieces are things that can have a huge impact on not only people's lives, on the people that are working at the company, but they can also be very long lasting. And it sounds like you worked with some great brands while you were at Razorfish. Your early career was very successful. You moved up to be a vice president and global social media lead. And eventually you moved on to one of the biggest companies in the CPG space. You moved on to PepsiCo. So talk to me a little bit about what was the reason why you decided to move on from your successful and growing career working at an agency to become an in-house marketer? Before we get into that, I'd like to just share quickly another anecdote tied to my career at the time. Sure. I was a raised fish. My career was growing. And I started dating someone who is now my wife. And we were at dinner one evening. And I suddenly realized that I hadn't finished my education. She had a PhD in psychology. I had my bachelor's degree. I had always wanted to go to grad school and I just never had. And I felt, oh my gosh, before I marry her, I should do this. So I took a sabbatical from Razorfish, went to graduate school at the London School of Economics over in Europe, which was a big transition, mm -hmm. did a master's in new media where my focus was on social network theory. It was actually the PhD track program. But by that time, I was completely in love with my wife-to-be, and I didn't want to go on to do a PhD, so I returned back to the States to marry her. But I say all of this because when I returned to the States in 2007, I realized that this whole social media thing was really just at its early days and was going to take off like crazy. And I went to my CEO at Razorfish and said, we need to start a social media practice to really advise companies on what to do online around social media. 
And he said, I don't really get what you're talking about, but I've trusted you in the past and it's worked out well for the agency. I'm going to give you six months to go and figure it out. So what I did was I developed the social media practice, which was a service offering, a brand, thought leadership, consulting engagements, really to help companies enter the social media era. And by 2009, it had grown immensely. We were working with all kinds of companies. My own reputation had grown massively because of that, because I was considered one of the leaders in social media marketing. And it also led to me being invited to write the book, Social Media Marketing for Dummies. So I wrote the first dummies book on social media marketing, which went on to be reprinted four times and translated into 10 languages. So in a bizarre way, that is actually how I got into marketing. Until then, I was doing user experience design and brand strategy. But then through my research in London and then starting this practice, I got into marketing. What was it about social media as you were in school that you found so fascinating? And why do you consider that to be your transition into marketing, not when you were focused on brand strategy? So what captivated me about social media were two things. You know, I'd already been familiar with the social media space, and I'm really dating myself now, but through the lens of Friendster and some of the other earlier platforms. But what captivated me was that with the new breed of social media platforms, at that time it was MySpace and Facebook was just starting to grow, the way information spread on those platforms, how quickly and how they brought people together was like nothing ever before. So that's what captivated me about the space. And I wanted to research and understand what made information spread and who spread it more than others. And that led to the research on social network theory. The reason why I see that as the time I truly entered marketing was because until then, whenever we would do brand strategy at Raise the Fish, it was really an extension of brand strategy to take the brand online. It wasn't crafting the core, the heart and soul, the DNA of the brand. And it was only when we launched the social media practice that we started to really think and talk in terms of the core of your brand has to change as well for a digital world. So you mentioned that it was 2009 and it was kind of the rise of Facebook and MySpace was still a prominent player. When you decided to make your shift from Razorfish to going in-house at Pepsi, were you primarily focused on social media? And if so, what were some of the campaigns and what were some of the channels that you were working on? So I got recruited into PepsiCo for a few reasons. First and foremost was the recognition by the PepsiCo leadership that social media and social media marketing wasn't the stepchild and shouldn't be the stepchild of marketing anymore. Until then, everyone would think about the big, awesome TV ad coming from the big traditional agencies, and they would do their thing. And then it would be up to these young kids to figure out what to do with it in digital or with social media. Uh, Full credit to the PepsiCo leadership. They saw how the world was changing, how consumer behavior was changing. And they said, we need to put social media marketing more close to the center of our marketing efforts. So they hired me in to run all digital marketing for the PepsiCo beverage brands. So by all digital marketing, that meant, of course, the social media marketing, the paid advertising online, as well as managing all the web properties for PepsiCo. 
what this translated into in practical terms was running the digital efforts for three Super Bowl campaigns, which was incredibly exciting, for two summer of Pepsi campaigns, and then being a part of the team that relaunched the Pepsi brand positioning as well. Tell me a little bit more about repositioning uh, Pepsi as a brand. What was the strategy and what was the reason for doing that repositioning? So I was on the team that did it, and it was an incredible learning experience for me. What drove the decision was Pepsi had just come out of this phase where it had run the Pepsi Refresh project, which was this massive cause marketing effort, which I would suggest was really ahead of its time. And it did very well, except for one thing, which was it wasn't as close to the true DNA of the Pepsi brand which was all about music and entertainment and the lighter side of life. So two years into my time at Pepsi, the PepsiCo leadership and the marketing leadership decided to rebrand Pepsi with the idea of bringing it closer to those more traditional values of the Pepsi brand, the music, the entertainment, getting the most out of life, being for the next generation, all of those elements. An incredible amount of research was done around the world to feed into this effort. And it landed on this brand platform that I think was used for several years after that, the Live For Now platform. And it was a whole idea of you want to get the most out of life by living at your best every day and doing more and more things, living for the now. It's interesting that a soda company is promoting themselves to be the reason to live for the now. And I'll save my judgment on high fructose corn syrup and the health risks for drinking a lot of soda. But it's interesting to hear about how the brand thinks of itself and how it repositions itself. A special thanks to our presenting sponsor, Mutinex, ready to take your team from I think to I know. Then join brands like Samsung, ING, and Asahi who make better marketing decisions with Mutinex. Mutinex Growth OX, the marketing mixed modeling platform that makes measuring ROI fast, easy, and cost-effective. Request a demo at mutinex.co. That's M-U-T-I-N-E-X dot co. Time for a one-minute break to hear from our presenting sponsor, Mutinex. In 1919, John Wanamaker said, half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. I just don't know which half. Well, the advertising landscape has changed since then, and instead of reaching your audience on two channels, you're probably reaching them on 20. Turns out John didn't know how easy he had it. But that doesn't mean that you should give up on striving towards marketing effectiveness. No matter how complex your marketing strategy is, Mutinex Growth OX is the market mix modeling platform that measures the impact of marketing on your bottom line. Mutinex's market mix modeling platform calibrates your insights against the latest market conditions so you can make media and marketing investment decisions confidently and quickly. Ready to take your team from I think to I know? Then join brands like Samsung, ING, and Asahi who make better marketing decisions with Mutinex. Mutinex Growth OX, your best decision starts here. To learn more about Mutinex, go to mutinex.co. That's M-U-T-I-N-E-X dot co. Okay, here's the rest of today's interview. You also moved from being at an agency to being an in-house marketer. What was the difference for you going from being a service provider to working in-house? It was a massive transition for a few reasons. First and foremost, 
when you're on the agency side, you're only seeing one narrow piece of marketing. You're seeing the advertising side or maybe a little bit of the strategy. You're not seeing everything from the planning cycles, the annual planning cycles, the three-year planning cycles, to the impact on sales, to getting to come around and run the same campaign or the same objectives of following year, but with a new campaign. You're not getting to see the impact on the bottom line, how to work with budgets, how to negotiate relationships with agencies, how to build teams. Being an organization of 300,000 people where the Marcom function is maybe a thousand people and a very small part of the total organization. So it was an incredible transition. And I feel I really grew immensely during that period. The other reason why it was a very big transition is I joined Pepsi, which had one of the largest marketing budgets of any brand in the country, certainly PepsiCo as a whole. And what that meant was that everyone else in the marketing ecosystem, in the agency world, as well as in the MarTech and the ad tech world and the publishers too, they all wanted some of my time. Wanted to take you to dinner. Absolutely. They all <laughs> wanted a piece of my wallet. <laughs> right. So the first two months, I thought, gosh, maybe I'm just a really intelligent, smart guy and with a good sense of humor. But of course, I quickly saw through that. And it was a good growth experience for me because it really made me realize that the more senior we get in organizations, the more responsibilities we carry the more we have to fall back on our value systems that we hopefully would have learned while growing up. Because when you're dealing with very large budgets across continents and you have everyone wanting to take you to dinner, it is very easy to lose your own moral compass or to start making shortcuts or to struggle with certain decisions. So it was a great growing experience for me and it was a wonderful three years. But just seeing how the world worked from that perspective where I could call anyone in the marketing ecosystem and they would jump to talk to me and set up time to pitch whatever offering they had was really interesting. It was a new thing. I was used to being the person doing the selling. It's like, so this is what it feels like to be the prom queen. Exactly. Because obviously I wasn't the prom queen earlier in my life. It's interesting that you say once you were in this position that was sought after and very visible with a large marketing budget, you basically drew the parallel of, I thought I was this super gregarious, fun to be around, brilliant marketer, and everybody wanted my marketing budget. I would argue that two things can be true and likely were. I'm sure that you were sought after because of the budget. I'm sure that people were reaching out to you and comfortable doing it because you were approachable and intelligent. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> of course, of course. So tell me a little bit more. Eventually, you decided to move on from Pepsi and you headed to the Bay Area where you live and reside now and work for Visa, another big brand, another in-house role. What was the reason for making the shift from running digital marketing at Pepsi to a dramatically different business in financial transactions for Visa? So as I said, I had a wonderful time at PepsiCo. I learned an immense amount. I really got to work and learn and observe the way the best in the business truly worked. However, towards the end of my third year, I got a phone call from a recruiter and she told me all about Visa. And what captivated me about Visa was three things, actually. Firstly, I was always a guy who had been enamored by everything around the internet, going back to the mid-1990s. So for me, Silicon Valley, it's sort of like a mecca for me. 
I think about all the companies that have been born here in the garages and have grown up. And I always knew at some point I would want to be in the Valley. So that was an immediate attraction. The second thing in terms of the opportunity, what I found fascinating about Visa was here was a company that was going to go digital as a whole, you know, as payments went digital. And it was going through this massive and arguably messy transition from being a financial services institution to one that is as much a technology company. And that captured my imagination, especially because Pepsi, wonderful company, and had the opportunity to work on from brand Pepsi to Mountain Dew to Lipton Iced Tea to a lot of the beverages in the portfolio. But they were still physical products, and they'd always be physical products. And even though we had this big CRM program that I led and a point system, and we were doing a lot of interesting things, the company as a whole, its epicenter was in the physical world. And it always would be, and that made sense for it to be. So with Visa being different, that captivated me. And then the third piece was I was excited about what my first assignment would be, which was to lead the new brand positioning, you know, working for the CMO and with the chief brand officer as well for the Visa brand and roll that out. And this time I would be even closer to the epicenter of the brand. So talk to me about the repositioning effort. You mentioned that you're working with the CMO. You know, I think of Visa as a very established brand. And obviously there's a digital transformation that happened in terms of how their products are being used. Tell me a little bit about repositioning Visa. The reason why the CMO wanted to reposition the Visa brand were a few things. First is he wanted to infuse much more of a digital sensibility into it, which made a lot of sense because the entire business was going digital and he wanted the brand to be digitally ready as well. The second reason was he had a really sharp insight, which was that you cannot have a brand that looks and feels and sounds and behaves differently depending on the audience that it is reaching. And this was the case for many brands at that time. The way they spoke to consumers were very different to how they spoke to employees, to how the brand spoke to regulators or to B2B clients or whoever it may be. And he wanted to bring the brand together and make it one cohesive brand that could serve as a multi-stakeholder platform. So that was the other imperative. To get to this, it really stress-tested all my diplomacy skills that I had because it really took a massive team effort because we had a lot of folks who were serving these different constituents' needs and not just in the Marcom function and the rest of the business who had a particular way of talking about the Visa brand, who had a particular way of expressing what the brand meant and what to do with it. And we needed to bring it all together, both across all these different stakeholders, but then not just in the US, but in the hundred odd countries around the world that the Visa brand operated in. So it took a lot of research, an incredible amount of diplomacy, a lot of education, a lot of partnership, and a lot of listening, which we talk about these skills like collaboration, communication, listening. We use those terms very loosely, but they're actually really hard to do. And it was a wonderful time for me because I grew immensely through it and had a lot of fun as well. So the thing that's interesting to me, it's great to hear about the repositioning of Pepsi and Visa. And these are large enterprise companies and you're on the marketing leadership team and you're basically trying to turn cruise ships and you're working with these large teams and large brands and big budgets. 
And it sounds like you're very much on the Fortune 500 CMO track. A lot of successes, a lot of wins under your belt. And then the next step in your career is to move into consulting and author a book. So talk to me about the rationale for you to step away from the high profile enterprise company marketing leadership roles to be a consultant for you know some early and some later stage companies and also to become an author. So I spent five years at Visa. And in those five years, I had an opportunity to launch this new brand platform, lead the digital transformation efforts of everything in the Marcom function from the MarTech to the AdTech to the platforms to the digital media partnerships. And then I also had the chance to lead a lot of innovation, go-to-market efforts around the world. After I'd finished my last assignment, which was all about innovation, go-to-market and working with issuers and merchants and startups, I realized that I was ready for a new challenge. And one day I was having dinner with my wife and we started talking about the world that's around us. And I was lamenting the fact that I truly believed that the world, all of us would in a pass on to our kids, might end up being worse off than the world that we're inheriting from our parents. And I found that incredibly frustrating and difficult. And I felt that I was a guy who had been able to have the good fortune of working for these incredible companies, but that I hadn't done enough myself to sort of, in a tiny way, maybe even give back. So we were talking about this and the conversation led to this recognition that a lot of the challenges that we all face in this time of not knowing what to trust, not knowing who to believe in, not knowing what is fact, what is fiction, what's a misinterpretation, whatever it may be, actually can be solved through the lens of these seminal psychology studies that really explain why we fall for fakeness in the world. And this was because my wife's a clinical psychologist and the conversation just developed. And in that dinner table conversation, the idea of the book was born. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that doing this book was so massively important. It was the most important thing I could do in this time. And the only way to do it right was to walk away from my day job and to put a lot of effort into the book. I wasn't walking into this blind because I'd already written a book, Social Media Marketing for Dummies, early in my career. I also had already joined the board of a public Fortune 500 company. So I was connected and I knew I'd still be deeply connected to the professional world as I started on this book. But it was a big transition. I've been lucky that the book writing and launch is going extremely well. I'm still very happily married to my wife, who is my co-author in the book. And my consulting business has picked up quite a bit. It's interesting to me. Essentially, it sounds like you have this career path that you have a successful career and you decide you want to go back and get your education and you become inspired and you decide you're going to dedicate a meaningful portion of your life studying and understanding social networking. And then you come back and you get into the corporate world and you're leveraging that experience and you go all the way through the ranks, almost to the peak of the marketing department in some of the largest companies in the world. And then again, you go through this soul searching phase where you decide that you want to take the skills and lessons that you've learned and apply them in a different way. Tell me a little bit about your process for writing the book and give us a little bit of a preview of what it covers. Of course. 
When I talk and think about the book, the first thing to know about me and anyone who's listening may have picked up on this the way you did. I'm a very big believer in the philosophy to take two steps forward. You have to take one step back. Early in my career, I suddenly took a sabbatical from my job to go to grad school and be a student again. That year was hard because all of a sudden I was on a student budget, but it catapulted me to a different level. When I left Razorfish and joined PepsiCo, it was a hard transition because I did not know that world. And I wondered at first whether I was taking a step back because my public profile was changing and there were difficulties around all of that, but it ended up working really well. When I left Visa, I realized that I'd really find out who my real friends are firstly, because I wasn't getting as many calls as I was getting when I was at Visa. And I knew that for a while, life would slow down and my calendar would just have these big blocks in them that would say writing or editing or publisher call or research phase and topics like that in it. And it wouldn't, I wouldn't be out in the marketplace talking to people spending marketing dollars, driving sales or products. So it was a huge transition. The way it worked, though, with my wife was actually it couldn't have been a smoother, more exciting process. First and foremost, we have different sleep patterns. She would get up at four in the morning, do a lot of research, create outlines. The kids would wake up, we'd have breakfast together. I would then do some consulting work, do a bit of my writing, but then late at night from 9 p.m. onwards till 1 a.m., that's when I would do a lot of my writing. I would go to bed. She'd wake up again at four in the morning, read the work that I'd done, edit it, add to it, and we would just keep going in the cycle. So it was an unusual cycle, but it worked really well for us. And it still gave me time to do the consulting and my board work. The other piece that I want to mention is it allowed me time to get to know and be with my kids so much more. During my time at Visa, I learned an immense amount, got to work with incredible people, but I was also on a plane internationally once a month and domestically once a month as well. So I was traveling like crazy, working really long hours, and my mind was always somewhere else. This phase, being around my kids, working with my wife as a collaborator in a very trusted fashion, and developing this book was an incredible experience. Well, first off, having big blocks on your calendar that are for writing or editing or just long conversations sounds like an amazing luxury to me. I'm fascinated and jealous. And second of all, I'm, I'm interested in hearing a little bit about some of the conclusions that you had from studying the landscape of social media. And let's talk a little bit about what the core premise of the book is, which is understanding how to determine what's real and what's fake, which is something that's becoming an ongoing problem in today's society. Tell us a little bit about what you learned from going through this process. So as I looked back on my career, I realized that over a 15, 20-year period, I'd spent a lot of time evangelizing everything social media. I believed in it, whether that was at PepsiCo or Razorfish prior to that or at Visa. And I'd also traveled the world an incredible amount, advising and consulting with companies and pushing them into the social media era. But as time passed by, I realized that there were also social implications and repercussions that I wasn't truly cognizant of or being as sensitive to as I should. As we wrote the book, we developed a thesis based on all of the research that we had done and both of our life experiences that we're living in an era where 
we're not trusting one another the way we once did. Behind that lack of trust is also recognition that it's gotten harder for anyone to tell what is fact and what is fiction. In fact, in 2016, post-truth was recognized by Oxford Dictionary as the most important word of the year. And if we were to fast forward to 2018, the United Nations Secretary General said that we have a trust deficit in the world. So we were witnessing and seeing and being a part of this. Some of it, not all of it, was happening on the social media platforms and online more broadly as well. We were all retreating to our own echo chambers. We were all getting more and more comfortable with just opinions that agreed with our own. And we didn't really know what to do when someone disagreed with us on the topic. We had forgotten the, the wonderful historic art of having a healthy argument, but still remaining friends. So with all of that happening, through our research, both into the psychology, the media, the management theory, we developed a hypothesis that in the time that we live in, it is not enough to blame leaders, to blame the media, or to even blame companies for this fakeness and this lack of trust. We ourselves, as regular people, all of us, carry a certain responsibility too. And what it is, is just like software has glitches, we human beings have glitches as well. And it's important to know those glitches and then learn from them so that you can steal yourself against the fakeness in the world that exists all around us. So that's the thesis of the book, that we ourselves carry responsibility. But the good news is, whether it's through the book or elsewhere, we can develop the mechanisms to fight the fakeness and lead stronger and happier professional lives and professional careers and also better personal lives. So as you reflect back on your career from where you stand today, you've gone from somebody with a, a diverse set of skills early on in your career. You found a niche for yourself. You went back and got an education, learned a lot about social media, and had a meteoric rise in some of the largest companies in the world. And you decided to step away from it all to write this book that is really meant to be a tool for society to help understand how to differentiate and take responsibility for their own judgments. When you think about your career path, having gone through that arc, and you think about the future, are you planning on going back into marketing? Are you planning on writing this book and having it be a phase of your career? Or is this the long-term vision in the future for you is sharing your philosophies on how people can use judgment in the post-truth era? I would say that I don't know. And if there's anything that's really helped me along in my career at vital points is, ironically, compared to maybe many others, is being comfortable in the space of the I don't knows and being willing to take what opportunities come my way, being willing to jump out of my comfort zone, and also being willing to take a step back to take two steps forward. We're very excited about the book. Early signs point to it being a success. We are as missionary as ever in our mission around it because we truly and deeply believe it'll help people while still being a really engaging and fun read. At the same time, I'm very close to the corporate world, both through my board and the consulting work that I do. And that's exciting and different kinds of opportunities come my way. And I'm also in a phase where I'm learning an incredible amount just by virtue of the 
subjects I'm having to research and have conversations around, like what does it mean to trust in the artificial intelligence era? Are we ready for a time where we have to depend on our AI to help us determine where we get transported to and how, or how we use AI tools to guide our finances, but in ways that don't have bias built into it. So it's a really interesting time. And my two cents to the listeners is there's no better skill than getting used to discomfort and disrupting oneself and to allowing for the unknown. And that's how I think about my own career. I think the thing that I appreciate the most from this conversation is your recognition that to move forward, sometimes you need to take a step back. And it seems like reflect as well. And I think that hearing your story of having a successful career and then taking a step back and doing something different and really finding what is your path and doing what you should be doing is inspirational. I think it's something that I've not necessarily intentionally tried to do in my career, but has just sort of happened where lots of us have false starts and sometimes you learn the most from those failures and you're able to move forward. And it sounds like you've been very thoughtful about how to do that. And it's produced some really interesting work and some really interesting professional experiences. And I'm very excited to dive into the book and I uh, appreciate you sending it to me. And I appreciate you coming on the show and telling us about your career experiences. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. And I feel we should have gotten to know each other a long time ago, but I'm excited that you're about to be a neighbor again here in Willingame. Well, I'm excited for it too. So thanks for coming on the show. And that wraps up this episode of the MarTech Podcast. Thanks again to Shiv Singh for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about Shiv, you can click on the link in our show notes to his LinkedIn profile. You could send him a tweet. His handle is Shiv Singh, S-H-I-V-S-I-N-G-H. Or you could visit his website, Savvy Matters, S-A-V-V-Y-M-A-T-T-E-R-S.com, where you can find information about his book. We're also going to publish a link to his book's Amazon page. So if you're interested in purchasing the book, you can find it there. If you're a subscriber to the MarTech Podcast, thank you for being a member of our community. We always want to hear from you, so we created benjshap.com slash questions, where you could send us your marketing questions, which we'll answer live on our show. Of course, you could also reach out on social media. My handle is benjshap, B-E-N-J-S-H-A-P on LinkedIn and on Twitter. And if you haven't subscribed yet and you want a weekly stream of marketing and technology knowledge in your podcast feed, we've got great episodes lined up for you throughout the week. So click the subscribe button in your podcast app and we'll be back in your feed tomorrow morning. Okay, that's it for today. But until next time, my advice is to just focus on keeping your customers happy. Thanks for listening to the MarTech Podcast, and I hear everything production. Looking to launch or scale a podcast like this one for your brand? Then visit IHearEverything.com.